Section 8 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Science and Speed, Part 1. The opening of the reign of Queen Victoria coincided with the introduction of many of the great discoveries and applications in science, industry, and commerce, which we consider specially representative of modern civilization a reign which saw in its earlier years the application of the electric current to the task of transmitting messages the first successful attempts to make use of steam for the business of transatlantic navigation the general development of the railway system all over these countries and the introduction of the penny post must be considered to have obtained for itself had it secured no other memorials an abiding place in history a distinguished author has lately inveighed against the spirit which would rank such improvements as those just mentioned with the genuine triumphs of the human race and has gone so far as to insist that there is nothing in any such which might not be expected from the self-interested contrivings of a very inferior animal nature amid the tendency to glorify beyond measure the mere mechanical improvements of modern civilization it is natural that there should arise some angry questioning some fierce disparagement of all that is done there will always be natures to whom the philosophy of contemplation must seem far nobler than the philosophy which expresses itself in mechanical action it may however be taken as certain that no people who were ever great in thought and in art wilfully neglected to avail themselves of all possible contrivances for making life less laborious by the means of mechanical and artificial contrivance the greeks were to the best of their opportunity and when at the highest point of their glory as an artistic race as eager for the application of all scientific and mechanical contrivances to the business of life as the most practical and boastful manchester man or chicago man of our own day we shall afterwards see that the reign of queen victoria came to have a literature an art and a philosophy distinctly its own for the moment we have to do with its industrial science or at least with the first remarkable movements in that direction which accompanied the opening of the reign this at least must be said for them that they have changed the conditions of human life for us in such a manner as to make the history of the past forty or fifty years almost absolutely distinct from that of any preceding period in all that part of our social life which is affected by industrial and mechanical appliances the man of the latter part of the eighteenth century was less widely removed from the englishman of the days of the past in letters than we are removed from the ways of the eighteenth century the man of the eighteenth century travelled on land and sea in much the same way that his forefathers had done hundreds of years before his communications by letter with his fellows were carried on in very much the same method he got his news from abroad and at home after the same slow uncertain fashion his streets and houses were lighted very much as they might have been when mr pepys was in london his ideas of drainage and ventilation were equally elementary and simple 
we see a complete revolution in all these things a man of the present day suddenly thrust back fifty years in life would find himself almost as awkwardly unsuited to the ways of that time as if he were sent back to the age when the romans occupied britain he would find himself harassed at every step he took he could do hardly anything as he does it to-day whatever the moral and philosophical value of the change in the eyes of thinkers too lofty to concern themselves with the common ways and doings of human life this is certain at least that the change is of immense historical importance and that even if we look upon life as a mere pageant and show interesting to wise men only by its curious changes a wise man of this school could hardly have done better if the choice lay with him than to desire that the lines of his life might be so cast as to fall into the earlier part of this present reign it is a somewhat curious coincidence that in the year when professor wheatstone and mr cook took out their first patent for improvements in giving signals and sounding alarms in distant places by means of electric currents transmitted through metallic circuit professor morse the american electrician applied to congress for aid in the construction and carrying on of a small electric telegraph to convey messages a short distance and made the application without success in the following year he came to this country to obtain a patent for his invention but he was refused he had come too late our own countrymen were beforehand with him very soon after we find experiments made with the electric telegraph between euston square and camden town these experiments were made under the authority of the london and northwestern railway company immediately on the taking out of the patent by messrs wheatstone and cook mr robert stevenson was one of those who came to watch the operation of this new and wonderful attempt to make the currents of the air man's faithful aerial the london and birmingham railway was opened through its whole length in eighteen thirty eight the liverpool and preston line was opened in the same year the liverpool and birmingham had been opened in the year before the london and croydon was opened the year after the act for the transmission of the mails by railways was passed in eighteen thirty eight in the same year it was noted as an unparalleled and to many an almost incredible triumph of human energy and science over time and space that a locomotive had been able to travel at a speed of thirty-seven miles an hour the prospect of travelling from the metropolis to liverpool a distance of two hundred and ten miles in ten hours calls forcibly to mind the tales of fairies and genie by which we were amused in our youth and contrasts forcibly with the fact attested on the personal experience of the writer of this notice that about the commencement of the present century this same journey occupied a space of sixty hours these are the words of a writer who gives an interesting account of the railways of england during the first year of the reign of queen victoria in the same volume from which this extract is taken an allusion is made to the possibility of steam communication being successfully established between england and the united states preparations on a gigantic scale a writer is able to announce are now in a state of great forwardness for trying an experiment in steam navigation which has been the subject of much controversy among scientific men ships of an enormous size 
furnished with steam power equal to the force of four hundred horses and upwards will before our next volume shall be prepared have probably decided the question whether this description of vessels can in the present state of our knowledge profitably engage in transatlantic voyages it is possible that these attempts may fail a result which is indeed predicted by high authorities on the subject we are more sanguine in our hopes but should these be disappointed we cannot if we are to judge from our past progress doubt that longer experience and a further application of inventive genius will at no very distant day render practicable and profitable by this means the longest voyages in which the adventurous spirit of man will lead him to embark the experiment thus alluded to was made with perfect success the sirius the great western and the royal william accomplished voyages between new york and this country in the early part of eighteen thirty eight and it was remarked that transatlantic voyages by means of steam may now be said to be as easy of accomplishment with ships of adequate size and power as the passage between london and margate the great western crossed the ocean from bristol to new york in fifteen days she was followed by the sirius which left cork for new york and made the passage in seventeen days the controversy as to the possibility of such voyages which was settled by the great western and the sirius had no reference to the actual safety of such an experiment during seven years the mails for the mediterranean had been dispatched by means of steamers the doubt was as to the possibility of stowing in a vessel so large a quantity of coal or other fuel as would enable her to accomplish her voyage across the atlantic where there could be no stopping-place and no possibility of taking in new stores it was found to the delight of all those who believed in the practicability of the enterprise that the quantity of fuel which each vessel had on board when she left her port of departure proved amply sufficient for the completion of the voyage neither the sirius nor the great western was the first vessel to cross the atlantic by means of steam propulsion nearly twenty years before a vessel called the savannah built at new york crossed the ocean to liverpool and some years later an english-built steamer made several voyages between holland and the dutch west indian colonies as a packet vessel in the service of that government indeed a voyage had been made round the cape of good hope more lately still by a steamship these expeditions however had really little or nothing to do with the problem which was solved by the voyages of the sirius and the great western in the former instances the steam power was employed merely as an auxiliary the vessel made as much use of her steam propulsion as she could but she had to rely a good deal on her capacity as a sailor this was quite a different thing from the enterprise of the sirius and the great western which were to cross the ocean by steam propulsion and steam propulsion only it is evident that so long as the steam power was to be used only as an auxiliary it would be impossible to reckon on speed and certainty of arrival the doubt was whether a steamer could carry with her cargo and passengers fuel enough to serve for the whole of her voyage across the atlantic the expeditions of the sirius and the great western settled the whole question it was never again a matter of controversy it is enough to say that two years after the great western went out from bristol to new york the canard line of steamers was established 
the steam communication between liverpool and new york became thenceforth as regular and as unvarying a part of the business of commerce as the journeys of the trains on the great western railroad between london and bristol it was not bristol which benefited most by the transatlantic voyages they made the greatness of liverpool year by year the sceptre of the commercial marine passed away from bristol to liverpool no port in the world can show a line of docks like those of liverpool there the stately mersey flows for miles between the superb and massive granite walls of the enclosures within whose shelter the ships of the world are arrayed as if on parade for the admiration of the traveller who has hitherto been accustomed to the irregular and straggling arrangements of the docks of london or new york on july fifth eighteen thirty nine an unusually late period of the year the chancellor of the exchequer brought forward his annual budget the most important part of the financial statement so far as later times are concerned is set out in a resolution proposed by the finance minister which perhaps represents the greatest social improvement brought about by legislation in modern times the chancellor proposed a resolution declaring that it is expedient to reduce the postage on letters to one uniform rate of one penny charged upon every letter of a weight to be hereafter fixed by law parliamentary privileges of franking being abolished and official franking strictly regulated this house pledging itself at the same time to make good any deficiency of revenue which may be occasioned by such an alteration in the rates of the existing duties up to this time the rates of postage had been both high and various they were varying both as to distance and as to the weight and even the size or the shape of a letter the district or london post was a separate branch of the postal department and the charge for the transmission of letters was made on a different scale in london from that which prevailed from town to town the average postage on every chargeable letter throughout the united kingdom was sixpence farthing a letter from london to brighton cost eightpence to aberdeen one shilling and threepence halfpenny to belfast one shilling and fourpence nor was this all for if the letter was written on more than one sheet of paper it came under the operation of a higher scale of charge members of parliament had the privilege of franking letters to a certain limited extent members of the government had the privilege of franking to an unlimited extent it is perhaps as well to mention for the sake of being intelligible to all readers in an age which has not in this country at least known practically the beauty and liberality of the franking privilege that it consisted in the right of the privileged person to send his own or any other person's letters through the post free of charge by merely writing his name on the outside this meant in plain words that the letters of the class who could best afford to pay for them went free of charge and that those who could least afford to pay had to pay double the expense that is to say of carrying their own letters and the letters of the privileged and exempt the greatest grievances were felt everywhere because of this absurd system it had along with its other disadvantages that of encouraging what may be called the smuggling of letters everywhere sprang up organizations for the illicit conveyance of correspondence at lower rates than those imposed by the government 
the proprietors of almost every kind of public conveyance were said to have engaged in this unlawful but certainly not very unnatural or unjustifiable traffic five-sixths of all the letters sent between manchester and london were said to have been conveyed for years by this process one great mercantile house was proved to have been in the habit of sending sixty-seven letters by what may be called this underground post-office for every one on which they paid the government charge it was not merely to escape heavy cost that these stratagems were employed as there was an additional charge when a letter was written on more sheets than one there was a frequent and almost a constant tampering by officials with the sanctity of sealed letters for the purpose of ascertaining whether or not they ought to be taxed on the higher scale it was proved that in the years between eighteen fifteen and eighteen thirty five while the population had increased thirty per cent and the stage-coach duty had increased one hundred and twenty-eight per cent the post-office revenues had shown no increase at all in other countries the postal revenue had been on the increase steadily during that time in the united states the revenue had actually trebled although then and later the postal system of america was full of faults which at that time only seemed intelligible or excusable when placed in comparison with those of our own system End of section eight.